Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up this hour, at least 33 state legislatures are debating changes to various voting laws. We'll hear how the Brennan Center for Justice is tracking these proposed changes throughout the nation. Plus, how the pandemic is shaping current trends in journalism. I'll have a conversation with Renee Alegria, president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico, the nation's largest independent Spanish digital news outlet. But first this, four new mass COVID-19 vaccination sites are up and running throughout the state today. Now the locations are in Albany, Macon, Habersham County, and the Delta Flight Museum here in Hapeville, right outside of Atlanta. Now, the vaccination sites will be operated by the Georgia Emergency Management and Homeland Security Agency. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp gave a press conference at the GEMA headquarters earlier today. For the doses the state of Georgia controls in terms of distribution and administration, we have put nine out of ten shots available in the arm of a vulnerable Georgian. That includes over 763,000 seniors, and as I've said, At our previous press conferences, 85% of Georgia's deaths at the hands of COVID-19 have been among those 60 years of age and older. While vaccine demand continues to vastly outpace supply, we will continue to focus on how we can prevent 85% of future deaths, and that's by getting as many shots into the arms of seniors as we possibly can as quickly as we can. Now, in order to be vaccinated at these sites, Georgians, of course, must be in the 1A plus category. However, the governor did indicate more Georgians could soon be eligible. As supply expands over the coming months, we will be able to increase capacity at these four initial sites, shift resources to other communities as needed, and stand up new locations to reach more Georgians. Given our significant progress in vaccinating the one a plus population and the steady increase of our weekly allotment, we will be finalizing our expanded criteria in the coming days. Now, Georgia Director Chris Stallings added right now, most of these vaccination sites are nearly booked. So once you complete your first vaccine today, when you pull into the recovery area, essentially, where you'll be watched and made sure there are no allergic reactions, you'll be notified then to set your second appointment. So you have the ability to come right back to the same site, see the same faces, and experience the same vaccine there for your second dose. And we wanted to ensure that we had the appropriate number of doses, so we knew we had a certain allocation, so we just cut that in half to make sure that everybody there didn't have to struggle finding a second dose somewhere. So we definitely have the allocation to to handle the, the shots in arms that we've said we'd be able to do. Now, this vaccine rollout comes as the U.S. is vastly approaching that half million recorded deaths due to the coronavirus. And public health officials say it's a reminder that while cases, new cases are declining, the need for vaccinations remains urgent. Here in Georgia, the state's COVID-19 death toll stands at 14,633. And since last March, we know that the number of confirmed cases has now reached 804,812 cases in total. Matter of fact, there were more than 1,400 cases confirmed yesterday alone. Now, this is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Meanwhile, the pandemic continues to be a major focus for state lawmakers during this year's legislative session. But measures to change the state's voting laws and expanding gambling are also being considered. State lawmakers are nearing the halfway point in this year's session. We're joining Closer Look now with more on the gold dome happenings is WAB reporter Emil Moffitt. Emil, thanks as always. I appreciate it. Good to be here, Rose. You are currently down at the state capitol, correct? 
I am on the fourth level of the state capitol uh, here this uh, this morning, and so just uh, trying to keep track of all the things that are going on. And as you mentioned, it's busy, and we're we're just about at the halfway point. It is busy now. At this morning's press conference, George Governor Brian Kemp was asked about some proposed legislation which would require the governor to seek the legislature's approval for any extension of emergency powers. Explain this for our listeners, Emil. Yeah, so um, currently uh, with the with the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Governor Kemp at first got the blessing of the state legislators, but then every time he wanted to renew it, he could do it on his own. Mm-hmm. And this bill from Republican Ed Setzler would basically say you have to come back and get permission to extend it every time. And if we don't give you that permission, then it expires. Um, and so there's some interesting back and forth as far as um, if this is if this is logical, if this is something that makes sense. And this is primarily due just into the coronavirus or emergency for any emergency. It would be for any emergency where where the governor uh, extends that power and that uh, that emergency uh, as Governor Kemp has extended it multiple times during the pandemic. Uh, and what this bill, uh, according to the bill sponsor, uh, would uh pretty much say that future governors, this would uh, apply mainly to future governors, and that they want to uh, limit the power of, of, of the governor to be able to extend this emergency, uh, because there might be at some point in the future where the legislature and the governor would disagree on mm. the use of those emergency powers. Interesting. Now, another piece of legislation currently being considered, a bill that would keep local municipalities from cutting more than 5% of police department budgets. Now, this bill is being proposed by Athens Republican State Representative Houston Gaines. Uh, what's been the response to this measure, especially, Emil, since it's usually that the Republicans are all for, you know, no local control. So what's the deal here? Yeah, and this is in direct response to the defund the police movement, which we've seen as part of the social justice movements over the last year or so. Um, and it's got the support of many Republicans, including, as you mentioned, the sponsor, Houston Gaines, uh, who they say that that Georgians across the state should have a basic level, could expect a basic level of, um, you know, public safety and that you can't cut uh, more than five percent from a police budget in a certain year. There are a couple of exceptions, but basically says that they have to be funded to this certain amount of level. Uh, Democrats are pushing back on it, saying that. Uh, this really takes the control out of the local community, that mm-hmm. the cities and sometimes counties even have a better idea of how they want to allocate their funding. And if they wanted to, for instance, put more money from a police budget toward mental health issues, uh, toward addressing training mental health uh, professionals to deal with some of those mental health crisis situations that we've seen so often result in, in deadly action, uh, that they should be able to do that. Uh, but this would essentially take some of that control away if you're only able to cut 5% from a police budget in a given year. Emil, has this bill been up in committee yet? It has been in committee. We're expecting to be on the floor of the House tomorrow, so we'll see how the vote turns out there, and then, of course, we'll see uh, what happens to it when it heads over to the Senate. That should be very interesting. One measure that currently appears to have bipartisan support, gambling, I guess, in Georgia. Uh, now, Emil, are you a roulette type of person? Or are you slot machines or does that too personal for you? Uh, <laughs> slot machine. I've had a little bit of success on slot machines, but it was beginner's luck. Nothing, nothing since. Uh, but but yeah, a couple of different ways that, that gambling could be expanded here in Georgia through casinos, through horse racing, through sports betting. Um, and the, the, the first two of those, casinos and horse racing, we absolutely know for sure that that would require a constitutional amendment. There is some debate, however, mm-hmm. on sports betting, whether that would require a constitutional amendment. And that's something that even the legislators who are proposing this legislation can't really figure out. They've gotten mixed messages from the attorney general. They've gotten mixed messages from legislative counsel. So it could be where all three of them would have to get uh, a constitutional amendment, which is approved by the voters. But online, I guess, sort of sports betting through those sites like DraftKings and all of that, that is legal, as we saw from a couple of years ago. So I guess this would be different because we're talking about just the actual physical going into a casino or but with sports betting, wouldn't it mostly take place online? Or I guess you would go. I don't know. I mean, what am it I would all, it would all yeah it would all <laughs> it would all take place online and yeah. it would be run by the Georgia Lottery that's the current proposal uh, but the question is now does the Georgia Lottery is that within their current guidelines their current rules uh, to to be able to handle 
mm-hmm. to manage that that sports betting or authorize the sports betting part of it. Um, and so the Supreme Court did legalize it for to allow states to be able to legalize it. Mm-hmm. Many have 22 states across the country, including many surrounding Georgia, have legalized it, but it has not been legalized yet in Georgia. That's not to say that it doesn't happen. People mm-hmm. do place bets online, but it's not regulated by the state of Georgia. And if they did that, they would be able to bring in the revenue from it. Speaking of revenue, because that's where I was going, it's very interesting. I wonder if this the bills would have made it this far as opposed to other years, if we hadn't been coming off a pandemic where we know nearly every state in the nation had a decline in its revenue source, this ha- this depending on whom you ask, reports say that you know this could be a mild to significant revenue <laughs> gain for the state. But again, that depends on whom you ask. Let's shift again, talking about some other bills that would change the state's voting laws. Goodness, Emil, there are a lot. In fact, on Thursday, Republican State Representative Barry Fleming introduced House Bill 531, one hour before it was heard in committee. That's a little unusual. Tell me more about this measure. Yeah, that didn't sit well with with many Democrats on the committee and Democrats here in the General Assembly that this is, you know, David Ralston, the House Speaker, said before the session started, we wanted to have a deliberate, thoughtful discussion of voting bills. And then this 48-page bill is dropped an hour before it's set to be heard at committee. But this is an omnibus bill. It is very comprehensive. It covers everything from banning early voting on Sundays to restricting the use of drop boxes, doing away with no excuse absentee voting to where if you're under the age of 75, you get to have some sort of excuse as to why you're not going to be there on Election Day or perhaps a disability or illness. Um, And so it does a lot to change the way that Georgians vote. Emil, we know there have been a lot of measures. Is it the likelihood that also some of these measures might be rolled up into one another. We've seen that happen before. That's a, a, a common strategic, uh, you know, approach in, in state legislatures because they've because there have been dozens introduced. So is it possible then we could see uh, the the combining of some of these measures? You could see that um, because there is there are varying levels of support for these different measures. We've heard a lot of uh, the, the rank and file and even some of uh, the high ranking people uh, within the Republican Party here in Georgia, uh, say that they want to do away with no excuse absentee voting, for example, but that does not have the full-throated support of Governor Brian Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, House Speaker Ralston have said they are not as eager to roll that back as some uh, Republican lawmakers here in the General Assembly. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how these shake out in the end and what's put together and what's kind of pushed through separately. Right now, there are a lot of separate bills in the Senate one big omnibus bill in the House. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could still see an omnibus bill in the Senate, too, but it'll be interesting to see once this is all sorted out, which ones actually advance and, and go toward the governor's desk. And a lot of voting rights organizations, I know the ACLU of Georgia, their political director is going to testify at a public hearing. So a lot of opposition to these measures. Matter of fact, coming up just moments away, we'll hear from the Brennan Center, who's been tracking all these measures measures nationwide. Emil, before we let you go, you've been following a lot. Uh, what has been so far with this first half of the session nearly, uh, what do you make of it? A lot of action for we're still in a pandemic. Yeah, there has been a lot of action, a lot of bills filed so far. So we're trying to sort through, you know, with all the, the talk about elections coming off of the 2020 election cycle, that has been a real big focus of concern. Um, fortunately, there haven't been, there have been cases here and there of, of uh, COVID-19 here at the Capitol, uh, but for the most part, uh, lawmakers have, uh, after a initial, initially being hesitant, some of them to do the, the biweekly testing, now it seems like there's more adherence to that. Um, so we'll continue to see how we go as we go toward, toward crossover day, which is that day where, where bills really have to, uh, mm-hmm. to be passed by, by one house to be able to be considered by the other. That'll go a long way toward showing you know, what bills might actually be passed toward the end of the session. All right. WAB reporter Emil Moffitt, as always. Emil, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. You got it. Now on to some City of Atlanta news. Councilmember Natalyn Archibon is officially announcing she's going to run for City Council President. In addition to filing the necessary paperwork, Archibon released her first campaign video today. Yet in the face of all those excellent attributes for Atlanta, we are still facing challenges. We have crime in many of our communities. We have income inequality, housing insecurity, but we have hope for the future and with strong leadership, 
we will overcome those challenges as we have always overcome our challenges in the past. Now, current Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore is running for mayor. Archibald is the first council member to officially enter the council for president's race. It's only February, but there could be more candidates officially declaring. Now, former Atlanta City Council member Mary Norwood already announced she's running for the District 8 open council seat this year. Again, the news from the city of Atlanta. Council member Dallin Archibong is officially announcing she's going to run for city council president. Stay tuned. I think a lot more folks will be making a similar announcement. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We just heard from WABE reporter Mill Moffitt. Yes, Georgia lawmakers have proposed quite a few changes to the state's current voting laws, ending early voting on Sundays and requiring ID for absentee voting and also no excuse absentee voting. A lot of stuff. Just a few of the measures introduced mostly by Republicans. And Georgia isn't the only state considering sweeping changes to its voting laws. Now, the Brenner Center, the Brennan Center for Justice reports more than 30 states across the country have introduced, pre-filed or carried over what they call restrictive bills. Now, joining me now is Eliza Swearing Becker, and she's been part of a team tracking various voting laws around the country. She serves as counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice, and she joins me now. Eliza, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, just let's open with this. Uh, what do you make of this? I guess we shouldn't be surprised that maybe based on the November outcome that we're seeing a lot of measures introduced throughout the state, throughout the nation here. Yes, that's right. Typically, after a general election, we do see from state lawmakers bills that relate to voting in elections and often bills that are attempting to restrict voting access. But this year is a year like no other after 2020, which saw historic voter turnout and particularly lots of usage of vote by mail. We are seeing now over 165 bills to restrict voting access in very harsh ways and particularly focusing on limiting vote by mail and other methods of voting beyond poll in place voting. And before we dig further into that, for our listeners who may not be aware, let's get a little bit more information about your your organization. I mean, you folks who may not be aware, you all identify as nonpartisan, correct? That's right. The Brennan Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit policy and law institute. And part of what we do is work on voting rights and elections, including reviewing state laws that are introduced and passed across the country. Any idea in just terms of percentage wise for our listeners so we can sort of set the stage here? How does this current legislative session compare in terms of other years right after a a big election in terms of the number? Are we looking at maybe three times, four times, 10 times the number of bills that have been introduced? The ones that y'all consider restrictive, I guess. Well, just as compared to last year, we are looking at well over four times the number of restrictive bills that were introduced last year. And that's as of February 8th, which is now a couple weeks ago. We are continuing to track new bills that are introduced. So we expect that number to grow even further. Now, how do you all track these various pieces of legislation? Do you have someone on on ground in every state or is it by region? We have some very talented members of our team who are scouring these uh, state legislative websites who are tracking these bills very, very closely. 
and um, tracking well over 2000 plus bill, voting related bills now. Um, so it credit to the team that works on this with me who are uh, keeping track of very, very many voting and elections bills and the hundreds of bills on which we report are just those that either directly restrict voting access or expand voting access. I want to be clear. Did you say 2000 measures in total? There are well over 2,000 measures that affect voting in elections in some way. Wow. Where do you see most of these new legislation being proposed? Is it southern states, out west, one state in particular that's ahead of the <laughs> ahead of everybody else here? Well, really, lawmakers across the country have shown concerted interest in democracy reform and election issues, but we the interest in restricting voting access, we are seeing particularly in Arizona, Georgia, Texas, and New Hampshire. Um, so those are in some ways, some you know, Southern states, Georgia, Arizona, and Texas are states with already large populations of voters of color and states that are diversifying more quickly relative to the rest of the country. So mm-hmm. that's one of the trends that we're seeing is that these restrictive measures are, are being introduced in states with more voters of color. Just got a question from a listener who wants to know more about how does your guest define restrictive measure? Is it a fair definition or is it leaning? I love our listeners. They have great questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate that question. And of course, we are making a determination as to what restricts voting access. But we what we are assessing is whether the proposal will make it harder or easier for a voter for an eligible voter to cast their ballot. And so we are not looking at the partisan nature of the bill. We're just considering whether the bill takes away barriers to voting for 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 citizens mm-hmm. or if it puts more stumbling blocks in the way of voters in their path to the ballot box. And if you is it possible to even dissect those restrictive measures into several categories? I mean, for example, if we talk about voter ID or if we talk about absentee, which it obviously deals with the mail, have you all been able to break those down into categories as well? Yes, we do. And what we've seen this year is that the uh, biggest grouping of bills to restrict voter access are targeting mail voting, trying to make it harder for voters to obtain their mail ballots, to fill them out, to get those ballots counted. But we are also seeing quite a number of strict voter ID laws that would require voters to obtain photo ID and present that either in person when they're voting or name, particularly when they're voting by mail. So there are quite a few bills in Georgia that would require photocopies mm-hmm. of IDs to be submitted with absentee ballot applications and with the absentee ballots themselves, which is of course quite difficult because not everybody has a printer and a scanner sitting around at home, uh, let alone the difficulty of actually obtaining a photo, photo ID in the first place, mm-hmm. which which tends to disproportionately affect black and brown voters as well. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Eliza Swearing-Becker. She serves as counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice. And we're talking about how state legislatures throughout the nation are proposing changes to various voting laws. Uh, quick question for you as well. Are you all able to also see a trend in terms of Republican or Democrat controlled state legislatures that are, are that have the most restrictive measures that are being proposed here? Well, what we do see is that the very vast majority of restrictive measures are being introduced by Republican state representatives. But there are also states that are Republican dominated where we are seeing very many expansive bills introduced, even if those bills may not have any good political shot of passing. Mm -hmm. And likewise, there are states that are traditionally progressive where we have um, Republicans introducing restrictive bills that similarly aren't likely to pass, um, but they are bringing them forward nonetheless. And there are also states where legislators are introducing what you all call expansive bills. So what, what for our listeners, Give a definition of what that would entail. That's right. It's not all bad news. There are also hundreds of expansive bills that have been introduced across the country, more than 500. And what we mean by expansive bills is that the bills would make it easier for voters to cast their ballots. 
And again, we are seeing a real focus on mail voting after the high usage of that method last year. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of bills that would permit all voters to vote by mail. In other words, eliminate the excuse requirement in states that still have it or states that would expand access to or create the ability to use ballot drop boxes or allow voters to fix small defects in their mail ballots so mm -hmm. that their ballots can get counted even if they missed a technicality. So those are some of the areas that we're seeing legislators focus on in terms of expanding access. And there's also another category I want to get into because this looks at changing the way states electors vote in the Electoral College. So my first question is, before we get to how they're trying to do this, can they do this? Does the Constitution, does the U.S. Constitution not prevent this? That's a little baffling for me. If they're going to change the way states electors vote in the Electoral College? The U.S. Constitution actually gives the authority to state legislatures and to states to determine how presidential electors are allocated. Mm -hmm. And that's why you do have a little bit of diversity right now. So, for example, the Nebraska legislature allocates their presidential electors in the Electoral College by district, which is why you can see in Nebraska one Electoral College voter being attributed to Joe Biden, while the others were attributed to Donald Trump. Having said that, most of the states have a winner-take-all electoral college method of allocation. Mm -hmm. um, but that is something that is technically within the power of states to alter. Are we seeing a lot of these, or this is maybe under 10 or 15? Or are there a lot of these measures uh, being considered in general assemblies throughout the nation? Well, there are about 10 bills that would alter the, the, the approach of their um, allocation in the ma manner that I just described, switching to a from a winner-take-all system to allocating the electoral voters by district. But there are more than a dozen states that are seeking to adopt the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, mm -hmm. which is an agreement among states under which, if a sufficient number of states agreed, they would just allocate their electoral college votes to the presidential candidate who wins the national popular vote. This is a, effectively a way to circumvent the electoral college and allow the national popular vote to determine who wins a presidential election. Yeah, that's a debate that's always interesting to watch. And Eliza, I just want to get your opinion to as someone who, who is involved in this, because one may argue, well, this is great because maybe we'll cut down on voter fraud or election irregularities or others who are saying, no, this is just sort of backlash or one party is upset because they didn't win the, the, the president's the White House or what have you. Uh, do you all also do surveys and reports to try to get at the core of possibly why some of these measures are even being introduced, particularly in certain states where maybe the party that thought they were going to win didn't win? Talking about Georgia. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, well, what we do see is that state lawmakers are justifying some of these restrictive measures by claiming that there was voter fraud or concerns about voter fraud or election irregularity. But the fact is that voter fraud is extraordinarily rare, according to many, many academic studies, according to many courts that evaluated this just last year. Voter fraud is exceedingly rare. It is not a problem that plagued American elections. There were no considerable election irregularities last year. In fact, the general elections ran remarkably smoothly, given that voters were exercising their right to vote in the middle of a pandemic and turned out in record numbers. So these lies about voter fraud and election irregularities should not be used to justify restrictions on voter access. Do you think it's likely or maybe a better question would be based on in the past, especially coming off a, a, a presidential election, is there a percentage of just how likely many of these legislations will pass and why or why, why, or why not in, in terms of what's happened in the past? It's hard to predict exactly how many of these bills will make it through the legislative session, particularly because there are many bills that have been introduced in various states that do the exact same thing. So they're sort of copycat iterations within the same state. Um, but it really depends on how the legislative sessions go. These bills will be amended. Um, the legislature will the legislatures will consider them. And it also depends on lawmakers hearing from their constituents. Mm -hmm. um, so if you are a constituent and you do not like the kind of voting and election legislation that your representatives are advancing or supporting in committee, 
you can make that known. You can call your legislative office and tell them, I want no excuse absentee mail voting because it makes it much easier for me to cast my ballot and I'm not able to get to the polls on election day. So it's really important for for voters and constituents to know that the story's not over yet Mm -hmm. and you have an opportunity to participate in democracy, not just on election day, but really every day by letting your representative know what you want from them. And we'll be paying attention. We probably need to bring you back after all this is said and done and we'll calculate and see, you know, exactly what was passed. Eliza Swearing-Becker, she serves as a counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Eliza, good information. Thank you for the report. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Social Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A little over a year ago, remember, most of the news outlets here in the U.S., well, they were beginning to report about this. A dangerous virus is spreading rapidly in China, and U.S. officials are very worried that it could come here. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called, which produces pneumonia-like symptoms. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China. The situation still is a low risk for the American public. But then again, that could change. And that's the thing we have to keep our eye out for. Oh, Dr. Dr. Anthony Fauci, y'all should have listened to him. Yes, more than a year later, we're still battling with the coronavirus pandemic. And although... Some restrictions have been lifted. The pandemic continues to change pretty much the way nearly every industry in this country operates. And the news media industry is no exception Doing what I do. Now, an October report from the International Center for Journalists revealed that four out of five newsroom survey reported at least a 50 percent decline in revenue. Still, some promising news. Most news outlets and where we classify that as credible news outlets not what your Uncle Bob tells you he saw on social media, reported an increase in audience trust during the pandemic. Now, here in Atlanta, the nation's largest independent Spanish digital news outlet had to do a little shifting on its, of its own. And we're going to find out more because joining me now is Rene Alegria. He's president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico, also known as the Mundo Hispano Digital Network. Rene, great to see you again, virtually, that is. Thank you very much for having me, Rose. Absolutely. You know, before we get into trends and what the last year has been like for you all, I want to go back to the last time we spoke, which was in 2018. And you're so excited because you were talking about the current trends in journalism. Let's go way back. Take a listen. <laughs> really more importantly is is having a platform that is culturally inclusive. That is. What does that mean? Culturally that, that means inclusive. that it takes into account the lives of the audience from which it publishes for. And in our case, I mean, because we're now minority owned, I mean, we're, we're so lucky in that the staff that works at Mundo Hispanico has been just nothing but stellar, pretty much frankly, the, during the 40 years that they've been a pillar of the Hispanic community. And what, what we're doing as new owners is really just leveraging what's already there, focusing it, honing it to frankly, become something that we know it can be for the rest of the country. Um, This is a really dynamic time and place in Atlanta to do this. Mm -hmm. I think uh, it's been done before. We've seen media maverick companies like TBS and CNN Mm kind of come out of nowhere from Atlanta and take the rest of the world by storm. Atlanta's been really open to new ideas. And and frankly, some of the, uh, the media capitals they're, they're older. They're more entrenched. Sometimes it's harder to get something new out there. And I think that uh, us coming from Atlanta, beaming out to the rest of the country is certainly a plus for us. Now, Renee, what you failed to tell me was that you all had a pandemic plan in order uh, two years <laughs> later. Um, let's talk about this last year. Uh, how's it been for you all? I mean, you, yeah, you're digital, but 
I'm, like everything else, you all have had to shift. Can you just put in, sure. reflect on what this last year has been like for you? Sure. Well, that that doesn't that seem just like decades ago? <laughs> yes, you know? it does. I'm to myself there. I think, wow, all of that was said without the layer of COVID that we lived through in the last year, without the layer of the elections and everything that, that frankly, has, has really altered our lives in the last 12 months. Listen, Mundo Hispanico has been around for 40 plus years mm -hmm. locally. Um, when, when we acquired the company and brought it under minority ownership, one of the goals was, of course, to really bring it back into the community so as to be, be again, the pillar that it was when it started. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, we actually saved, I'd like to think, lives through what we did. Mm -hmm. um, the pandemic hit the, the Hispanic community incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I mean, the statistics out are just mind boggling. And so much of that had to do with a climate of fear out there about uh, you know, what it means to be Hispanic in America. Um, there was not a trust factor that the Hispanic community had with uh, more traditional media outlets, with the government. Mundo was able to go in and again, br break down the facts to, to deliver uh, information that was vital for the Hispanic community. Now, in terms of just everyday operations, like everyone else out there, yeah, it's it's been weird, you know. Um, I mean, we started out as a newspaper. Just mm -hmm. delivering the newspaper suddenly became the biggest challenge, you know. How are we going to get circulation uh, to where it was and routes that weren't suddenly are again and not and you know that so that was confusing but ultimately it was really about keeping our staff safe it was about keeping um the in the 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 reader uh safe with the information that we were publishing and that became our top priority overall you know i mean and thankfully uh as a result our numbers were up and higher than we thought, given the digital uh, strength and muscle that we have national. Um, but listen, the mom and pop shops that make up the core of the of of the local newspaper business, mm -hmm. they were hit the hardest. Yeah. You know, some of these mom and pop shops just vanished. Right. Where did they go? That has been something that we've had to confront. And that has been something that we've uh, done so through. Uh, social media, business profiles and spotlights, really helping the community uh, know that these these businesses are here and we need to support. Renee, let me ask you this, because obviously your your outlet has gone through a period of growth and, and change. And you talk about the four decade legacy um, here. But I'm curious also with just for clarity here, you all no longer do a print publication. Is there a print publication? Oh, no, all? we do. Oh, you still do? Okay. Yeah, we do. Because you... Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely a point of pride mm -hmm. for us. Um, you know, there is a digital divide out there in, in the world. And while our digital uh, business has just been on fire mm -hmm. uh, throughout the pandemic, making sure that our print gets out there into the community is something that we've made it an aim to do. I'm proud to say that, you know, we we are one of the few surviving uh, print publications into the Hispanic community. And as a result, you know, again, we're able to drop physically the information that our community needs. You mentioned the businesses, particularly the, the mom and pop, the smaller businesses. I'm also... Uh, I wonder how much of that did affect your revenue, too, because if businesses weren't able to advertise, did you have to change your model a little bit, too, in terms of the revenue and how you all were going to seek that? Luckily, we, you know, we, we have diversified how we generate revenue. It's not just the newspaper ads mm -hmm. that create revenue for us to continue publishing uh, quality journalism. We have long since uh, been a 
digital juggernaut in the Hispanic community. And between the two, we were able to continue publishing the newspaper. Um, and, you know, I, there, I have to give all credit to the Mundo Hispanico staff because they, this is a mission for us, you know? Um, they're out there making sure these mom and pop shops are, are still there and that we are there to supply them with, again, spotlights and, our, and access to our uh, user base. And through that, we've been, we've been very lucky. Renee, did you have any layoffs or furloughs throughout the, the organization? We did not. We did not. Um, yeah, I'm really happy to report that that was not something that uh, even crossed our mind. Um, you know, here, Mundo Hispanico is personal. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not just a blind corporation. You know, when, when, when we took over the reins, we, we run it like one would a family business. And, you know, the individuals that comprise the, the staff at Mundo Hispanico, you know, they're superstars. And there's no way if we could all help it that we would furlough or lay anyone off. And thankfully, uh, the business was tight enough and held steady enough and even grew uh, in, in, in certain ways that we were able to do just that. You all have a Facebook presence. You also have a YouTube presence and you have the online. Um, obviously, obviously, people can also access it uh, via, via mobile. And you and I both know that we and this has been coming long before the pandemic, that some news outlets have had paid, you know, subscriptions or as we call, you know, paywalls. That wouldn't work for Mundo Hispanico, would it? At, at this moment, no. Yeah. You know, our, our, our community um, really relies on our information to have uh, our community pay for that information at this juncture uh, is just not the right time to, to create a paywall. That doesn't mean that we'll explore that in mm -hmm. the future, but there are so many different avenues that we can create revenue for Mundo Hispanico that, that uh, makes still our information free for the user base. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Rene Alegria. He's the president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico, also known as the Mundo Hispano Digital Network. Let's talk about the pandemic and your coverage. Uh, you had, you talked about your wonderful journalists, your wonderful staff who were going out into the community to still do this work. First of all, uh, did you have anyone from a personal? I mean, everyone was okay. Did you have any confirmed cases? Everybody was all right while they were doing their job. I'm look, you know, I'm, I'm happy to report that everybody is fine now, but we had some scares. Really? We had uh, several on our staff test positive, get sick. We had a few that were hospitalized. We were not immune to what was happening in mm -hmm. our community. And, you know, that's Mundo. We are part of the community. There's no, there, there's no separation from what we do and the community that we, we report from. And, you know, so it was a tough year in that way, but, but we made it. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think it, what it did was it, it sharpened our coverage, you know? We were able to make it um, to relate in a way that it's not just uh, facts and, and, uh, and statistics that we're reading uh, and watching every day, but it's about the complex layers that, a family is affected when someone is tested positive with mm -hmm. COVID. Um, what do you do? Well, we were able to report on that in, in, a, in a, a, again, a very personal way. We just had a conversation last week with a community activist up in the in Hall County in the Gainesville area. And, of course, you know, that area has had a high percentage of infections. And it obviously has a high, a high percentage of, of Hispanic uh, residents as well. What has been th that story or the a, a continuing story you all have been covering that still just maybe is not getting enough attention or through your eyes, Renee, is just really, I don't want to call it heartbreaking, but you really hope that there is more attention brought to the plight of, of said individual or community or what have you? 
Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I think what we've had to overcome with our community is this climate of fear and mistrust that the Trump administration in particular uh, embedded with ICE raids, with, with you know, posting uh, job uh, fairs and then having that be an ICE raid. I mean, what, what that did to the mindset of the individuals in our community uh, made it so that Mundo had to bridge this gap of mm -hmm. what is real, what isn't, what is not to be trusted, what you can trust, and as a result, I mean, it was it was as basic as mask guidelines, mm -hmm. you know, um, what what this what COVID really is. I mean, it, it was it was granular. We, we essentially were providing, you know, information that, frankly, the CDC should have been doing um, in a way that would penetrate our community mm -hmm. in the way that. We so you all had to report and educate on misinformation and we know there was a lot of we'll call it misinformation to be nice some folks call it straight up <laughs> lies but we'll call it misinformation that was being right. disseminated and so you all are trying to counter that trust me I totally know where you're coming from with that uh, how is it now though do you feel and I know you can't speak for the entire Hispanic or Latin community but do you feel that with what the work you all have been doing that you, you did make um, some progress and you were able to give the information that people needed to make whatever decision they wanted to make about their own life or their own household. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we, we are the gateway of Georgia's Hispanic community. And so we don't take that, that title lightly, you know, when we post something on social media, uh, through Facebook, Instagram, etc. when it's on our platform, when it's printed in our newspaper, we know that it's true. We know that it's something that our community cares about, right? And through that, you know, we're able to, frankly, affect the lives of, of the individuals that comprise our community, the families, et cetera, that frankly are, are invisible mm -hmm. to so many, you know? Because of the mistrust that exists between our community and authorities, you know, crime is not reported the way it should. Domestic mm -hmm. violence, I mean, the, the explosion of domestic violence across the board, not just within the Hispanic community, but mm -hmm. certainly within the Hispanic community that we report on, you know? I mean, this is something that that uh, that we are able to help, right? And and so we're, we, we, we cast that spotlight um, in a way that authorities just can't, and in a way that, that makes it so that the... Uh, the, the, the user base of, of Hispanics in Georgia uh, see us as kind of that light. How much is your, I don't know if you want to call them unique visitors, I don't know how you all track this, browsers, unique visitors, how much did that increase um, since last year? So we're, we're, we're tracking about 10 to, to 12, sometimes 13 million uniques um, a, a month. Now that's national, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we what's great about Mundo is while it started out in Georgia, mm -hmm. right? We have very quickly gone national through our digital reach. Mm -hmm. um, in Georgia, we are the largest uh, single-handedly platform that reaches into the Hispanic community. So we're huge, you know? And a lot of folks in Georgia don't, don't really know that, you know? I mean, in, in so, in so, within the Hispanic community, even in, in Georgia, Mundo Hispanico is that it's, it's theirs, it's ours, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's also now because of digital, Californians and Texans and Arizonans and New Yorkers. So, you know, that just really allows us to, to, to do what we do as well as we as well as we can and see the effects of it. You know, it's, it's, it feels so good when we have the feedback that we do with our user base, with the information that we publish. And we should note for our listeners as well that online you can access it either in English or Spanish. So that is, that is some, that's a plus. Uh, let me ask you this, Renee, as we wrap up, what is the next step for you as you see Mundo Hispanico? What is that, aspect that maybe you're not you don't have yet or you want to improve upon sure. well you know I, I think what the last year has taught us um, again this is personal right it's a business that uh, is successful we've made it so um, 
But I think the future of, 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 of a lot of media platforms is a hybrid model that reaches into the communities that we represent mm-hmm. for social good, you know? And that doesn't mean that we have a, a, a stance either, either way. It just means that we are here for the community. For example, in March, we're going to be debuting uh, Project Mano a Mano, Hand to Hand. And that is where Mundo, we will be utilizing our platform to help bring dollars back into the community by creating an affiliate sales program that provides 50% commission to folks who sell classified ads. That's huge. Um, it's basically like the Uber of classified ads, right? So that right there, we know that folks who have lost their- But you're going to give them a bigger piece of the pie in Uber, right? <laughs> well, that's it. Right? I mean, my goodness, I, I'm hoping that folks will stop driving cars and just start selling, you know, classified ads to their friends and family. And that right there is going to, you know, help pay the rent. But that's the kind of thing that we can do as a company our size with access to the information that comprises our our community and we're able to tactically you know grow in ways that other companies just can't here come the uber emails renee (laughs) (laughs) Renee (laughs) president ceo of mundo hispanico also known as the mundo hispano digital network thank you so much for taking the time good to see you let's keep in touch okay thank you so much and keep up the good work you're amazing Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm just kidding, Uber. (laughs) That's it for today's edition of Closer Look, which is, I still think, produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Grace, you got some 70s music. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.